it shifted to guru worship. Um, slowly but surely um, kept going in that angle. So now rather than meditating on love or whatever your particular thing was, now you're supposed to visualize the guru. And now it's the guru's grace that you're having all these incredible meditation experiences. And there were a lot of us that had been there and watched that shift that were sort of, what's going on here? This is getting, this is different than what it was. Hello everyone. The voice you've just heard is that of Chris Johnston, who's the guest on the podcast today. For several years, Chris was the member of a cult called the Butterfield, which has recently been the subject of a documentary film, Holy Hell. I'll play the trailer of Holy Hell as a way of giving you some context and then jump straight into the interview of Chris. The documentary is available on Netflix, Amazon and iTunes, and I'll link to all those platforms below as I'm pretty sure you're going to want to take a look after listening to the interview. Okay, here we go. My name is Will Allen. I started making movies when I was 13. I went to film school and three weeks after graduating, my sister introduced me to her spiritual teacher and my whole life took a different path. It was the middle of the 80s and we wanted something different. They were so alive living from their heart and playing and jumping in ice cold rivers and hiking through the forest at night and oh my god i want me some of that we started it this is what we wanted it was our little utopia and we were all there because of this one man he's very charismatic like a child very playful he could dance he was artistic he was all those things we all wanted to be he was just this beautiful silent entity and i said i would follow you anywhere My films elevated him to the role of an awakened master. He spoke as if he had gone into the cosmos and come back. He said, what are you willing to give up to know God? It's not like we were forced to be there. We wanted to be there. He always told us we're an anti-cult. I was hallucinating, colors were moving around him, and I thought, I found it. I really felt like I had a purpose in my life. He just became stranger and stranger and more paranoid and more possessive. You can't say no. No is against the rules. He wanted to be worshipped. He wanted to be God. If you can't stand naked in front of your master, you can stand naked in front of your God. What's the scientific, rational explanation for this madness? It was so hard to believe, but I trusted him. I never dreamed it would happen like this. I thought we would be together our entire lives. Okay, so Chris, thank you very much for being here. Oh, thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me. I just wanted to start by stating, really as a reminder to myself almost, of why I sent you the message and was keen to do this interview. And it's because I've been involved in what you could just call Eastern spirituality for my whole adult life. And I think it's overwhelmingly a good thing. 
But we have to acknowledge that a lot of what's gone on, um, not just in Eastern spirituality and all forms of spirituality, but definitely in Eastern spirituality, has not been good. And there's been a lot of destructive spiritual movements and cults arise. And if we acknowledge that there's a, a baby in the bathwater and there's something good to to bring out of, of all these spiritual movements, then we have to come to understand that, understand what's gone wrong when it has gone wrong and move to a healthier future. And you're someone who has been there, done that, bought the t-shirt on spirituality and cults and gone on to study the whole phenomenon as well. So I'm just saying that as a reminder, really to myself, to that that's what I'm doing this for as a, a helpful resource in the end so people can come to understand this and their role within it. But first, maybe a bit of narrative as to what drew you into this group, the Butterfield. I, I think you were quite a young man when you got into it. And what was it that you saw about it and then thought, that's for me? Well, and, and that's really the, the beginning of the story. So I had just moved out of my family's home, um, had grown up in a small rural town in Southern California, and moved to the big city, Los Angeles, had an apartment in Hollywood, and was actually studying at the Musicians Institute there, was, um, studying guitar at that time. Um, big changes in my life, big transition, and that's when I started running into, um, well, several um, sort of alternative spiritual movements. Scientology, of course, was the first one. They were all over the place there. Um, I also ran into the Moonies, which you don't hear about very much anymore. A lot of people don't uh, remember who Sun Young Moon was, but in the 70s and 80s, he was the big boogeyman that um, everybody's kids were going and becoming moonies and being abducted and stuff. Um, they were actually on Hollywood uh, Boulevard recruiting as well. Um, I'm trying to remember what they were called themselves at that time. I think it was like the Unification, Unification Movement. Unification, yeah. yeah. And um, I hadn't heard that name for them, so I just started talking to them. And the more they were talking, the more I, I eventually I just blurted out without thinking about it. Oh, you're the Moonies. <laughs> and you can see their, their, their smiles stayed, but their eyes sort of fell ever so slightly. Um, <clears throat> said, Hey, where do you live? Can we come pick you up for a meeting? I was like, no, no, I'm done. <laughs> so you were streetwise, right? You knew. I was, was, I really was. That's what, what's so amazing is people think that, Oh, you're just young and naive and all of that. Uh, no. I knew cults were a thing, but I knew it was like, I knew the Moonies were a cult and I knew Scientology was a cult. And I, you know, I had the list of names, but I didn't understand it as a phenomenon. Um, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get into that more later, but I think that's a really important distinction between the ideology and the phenomena. Um, because there's lots of, there's lots of, um, people of all sorts of religious stripe. I can't think of a religion that I haven't heard of some cult attached to. Mm. Um, but we'll take, you know, Christianity, for instance. You know, Christianity in and of itself um, in this day and age is not a cult. It's arguable of whether it may have started as one. Mm. Um, but in this day and age, you know, the Catholic Church itself is not a cult. However, they're all cults that are Catholic-oriented. There are yeah. cults that are evangelically Christian-oriented. It's not to say that all evangelicals are in a cult. And I think this distinction is really important. Um, so anyway, that was, that was the framework 
that was the place and time I was in when I met um, the group through a friend, which often happens. Um, the Buddha field at that time were basically doing one-on-one -on -one interpersonal outreach. There was no formalized mechanism um, for bringing people into the group. Um, if members met somebody, had a good conversation with them, um, it, then they handed them a little card inviting uh, to Thursday night what we called satsang. Right. And um, then uh, Jaime Gomez, then calling himself Michelle, um, would be there, and that was that was how you got in. It changed a lot um, during my time there. Okay, but, now you um, described yourself as yeah. you described yourself in the documentary as having a problem with authority. Yes, very much so. Uh, which has carried on throughout your life. So you go along and you meet Jaime Gomez, calling himself Michelle, and it's a satsang, right? Where he is the embody. I don't know how quite how he was conceiving it, but typically he would like the embodiment of God. He's the one that's got the the light bulbs gone on. He's got the consciousness, and if you sit in his presence, that's going to come over to you too. That's the the nature of a a satsang. Mm -hmm. So how did that sit with you? And this issue with authority, was there a certain type of authority that bypassed your cynicism about it? Well, absolutely. And, and when I say I had a trouble with authority, um, it was more about what, and, and still today, it's what I view as legitimate or illegitimate mm. authority. Um, I'm an American. We are founded on egalitarianism. And if, um, if I, if, if, uh, I do not, um, think that the authority is valid, then I don't feel that I should submit to that authority. And so the more the more uh, authoritarian a system is, um, ironically, the more I sort of say, no, that's not valid. Um, if you have to enforce authority by violence, then that is the, the least valid form of authority. Whereas if you're doing it more by soft coercion or at best um, consensus and agreement, then that that is authority that I would view as extremely valid authority because of the level of buy-in. Um, so it, what bypassed it for me was exactly that, was because when I went to this first group meeting and, um, you know, walked in and there was the new age music playing and the meditation cushions on the floor and everybody sitting in meditation was a very, very powerful um, thing. You have a room of 80 people completely silent, all meditating together. Um, I'd never seen that before. And I, and it's religious. It has a, a tangible sort of feeling. Mm. I think um, people sometimes get, in, get it walking to, into uh, St. Peter's Cathedral or something like that, a sense of awe and that this, what this space has been dedicated to um, for so long. Um, so I was very impressed by that. And then I liked what the leader had to say. Um, he was saying some things that were very much um, in line with the little bit of Buddhism that I had read up on that time. You know, the idea that, that life is full of suffering and that there is a path beyond that suffering and that that path is an internal path and it could be reached through a meditation process. And that was a very, very appealing to me at that age. And so that's what um, made me step over that line and say, I'm going to listen to this guy and look at him as, as an authority because all of these people say he's enlightened and as far as for what i've seen of his show um i'm buying into it okay watching the documentary it's called holy hell 
But for the first 20 minutes or so, I thought, oh, maybe this isn't, you know, a documentary about the worst cult ever. This looks kind of nice. I could see myself joining. I wonder what bad stuff's going to happen. And then it goes off a cliff, right? But before, <laughs> yeah. before we go off the cliff, I'd, I'd like maybe to talk about the good stuff that went on um, with your involvement with the wider group and Jaime Gomez. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think it's important to acknowledge, because if we talk about the bad stuff only, people would say, well, gee, I'd never get involved with that kind of control freakery. And I think you have to bring across that it might have been a wonderful experience on a day-to-day -day level with uh, what really came across to me, particularly in, in the end credits, was uh, what an amazing group of people they were. And when they got free of the group, that um, they did all these different things in their lives, like therapists and artists and filmmakers. So you were surrounded by this very creative, interesting group of people of a similar mindset. What, what was it like in that early time, day-to-day, -day, being involved? Well, in the early time, um, and this is the reason a lot of people join any sort of group, is um, it was inspiring and uplifting. Um, every Saturday we would get together and if, if somebody needed help clearing out their yard, we would do that, painting a room, we would do that. Um, there was a lot of communal interaction and service in that way. So, um, yeah, it was it was really great. It was similar, I imagine, to what um, some people get out of doing volunteer work. Um, you feel like you're doing good, you're helping, you're part of a, a larger group. Um, you have shared values. Um, you know, it, it's a feeling of belonging. And that's a very powerful thing. And I, I, as human beings, we're pack animals, you know, and, and we like that feeling of belonging. And did you or all the members also have a sense that this is what life's all about in that you were transcending the material realm, you were getting in touch with this God consciousness, you were on this journey towards enlightenment. Was that also a part of the, or maybe a fast track, right? Because you're really committed. You've got a, a, an enlightened guru, and there's a total dedication. So you're, you know, the, the cutting edge here, perhaps. Is that, did that Well, then that's, how we, that's how we viewed ourselves, right? And that's how he was selling it, is, is he was selling is the people that are around me. I've only got a few people around me. You're looking at a group of 80 when I joined, roughly, give or take. Um, but that was his thing, is like, there's, I only have a few followers because only a few people are really ready to go balls to the wall with their spirituality. Mm -hmm. um, and that is how we viewed ourselves. And, um, you know, how, how any of these groups view themselves as exceptional, right? That's part of how we create that othering and keep ourselves in those small little confines is, yeah, we're, we're, we're doing something that's different and special and unique, and it makes us better than you. Yeah, and, and in a lot of contexts, I can see that, right? Because if you um, got to work and study with a fail like an art, if you're an aspiring artist and you got to study with a famous artist or a famous musician, or you would say, wow, this is really an opportunity. And you have the same sense then maybe with the guru. It's just not quite as tangible as to right. is he special or not. But one of the ways it's made tangible and something that I'm most keen to ask you about is these transcendent experiences that opened up for people seemingly around him where he would do this Shaktipa transmission. And um, my understanding of Shaktipa is it's the placement of the hand on, on or near the forehead and a transmission of energy from the enlightened master to the disciple, which has an awakening effect. And people undergoing this were reporting seeing lights and colors and the sense of bliss that would last for days. 
And then there was this other experience called, called the knowing, which was even beyond that. And in my experience of people who I feel become involved in cults, one of the most powerful hook-ins is the experience around the guru. And even mm. people I know who have come to hate their guru and think they are a narcissistic child who should probably be in jail, they'll say all that, they'll express their anger, but then they'll go, but you know, the thing is, I had these experiences and he yeah. had this awakening effect. And um, I was actually watching the documentary with my mother and she was asking me, what's this thing that they're putting their hands on, on the foreheads and people, are, is that all an illusion? And it was a hard question for me to answer because I'm left wondering myself, well, what's that about? So could you, could you speak to the kind of experiences you had, particularly with the Shaktipa transmission and other experiences that you interpreted as being, this is because I'm in the presence of the guru? Right, right. Um, well, I've, I guess that for me, I was, he, he first did, we just called it Shakti. And the first time he did that with me, it was, I think, my second time I had come to one of the Thursday night satsangs. And at the end of it, he would, he would say, who wants Shakti? And people would raise their hands and he'd take a long time scanning the room making eye contact with everyone and he'd pick a few and then he'd go off on this um, side room. It was actually a hall hallway that was wardened off with um, like a Hindu, Hindu blankets, Indian, Indian motif blankets. And he would have his throne brought in there and the light was very, very dim. And there was one attendant that was next to him. And, you know, people would be ushered in one by one. And you would come up to him on your knees, uh, very, very close. It's the only time most people ever got that close to him. So just being in that physical proximity of somebody that you don't get to be in. So I, I like seeing a celebrity, you know. Um, you, you, do, you see them from afar so much. And then when you actually, actually meet whoever, that, you know, that person is Kurt Russell, whoever. Um, you're like, oh, wow, you know, here you are. And, and it, there's something that feels very special about it. So that's a big part of it. You're there with your religious leader. It feels very intimate. And he'll message whatever he wants to message to you. And then he does the initiation. The first time I got it, I felt like I had done something wrong because I, I didn't experience anything. Right. And um, people were talking about seeing light and all this stuff. And that didn't happen for me for a long time. And I thought, wow, there was like, maybe there's something wrong with me. I'm doing this wrong. You know, I'm not open. You know, it couldn't be, it couldn't be a hoax because there's, you know, that's those 79 other people that are saying it's not. So social proof plays very big into this. Mm, yeah. But I could be in my meditation practice, you know, an hour every morning, an hour every night which was very difficult in the beginning. Um, and then there was this one time right before we were going on the retreat to Utah. So this must have been 1990, summer of 1990, I believe. Um, no, 91, excuse me. And he invited me in and said something to me about really like surrendering myself and, and stop not, Oh, stop playing cat and mouse with God because I still had a life. I was still going to school. I was kind of coming to these meetings, invited to the Monday night ones, but I was very tentative. 
And so he did the Shakti ceremony with me and I saw this flashing light. It was completely silent. And I, I was just, I was in awe, in absolute awe. I could not believe that the stuff that people were talking about was for real. And it's like, holy shit, this guy really is for real. He really is like the equivalent of a Jesus or a Buddha. Um, what didn't make it into the movie, and I greatly regret that it did not, was that what he was doing is he had a small light. And as your eyes are closed and his hands on your forehead, he's flashing the little light. Wow. That's what okay. that was. That's why we were seeing light. Now, here's where it gets bizarre, though. I still meditate. Um, not, not an hour every morning and every night. It's more whenever I want. Um, but sometimes I will see light. And it, it, it just, it's the weirdest placebo effect ever. But I've practiced it, right? I've spent 16 years practicing this. So eventually I've gotten to the place where I've convinced my mind that sometimes I do see light. Not consistently, not every time, um, but sometimes. So that just, to me, that's a, a mystery of neurology. Sure. Um, and I suppose when you lose faith in the guru, as many people do, and we'll come on to why in a moment, but you're left to scratch your head, as, as everyone is, as to, well, gee, was that all me or... I, I know he's not this God-realized person I thought he was, but maybe it's the, what I've seen actually in explanations for gurus. I think there's been a shift over the past 20 years or so from the guru is all God-realized to the guru is God-realized, but maybe not emotionally developed as a way of explaining the behavior um, mm. when it became untenable to carry on with the 100% God-realized paradigm. Um, so I've had a lot of people say to me okay my guru has the emotional intelligence of a, a a toddler okay and will throw tantrums but he is connected to this transcendent reality because he can bring it through and induce these experiences so we and other members left to struggle with that um after yeah that, the, big, big something that he not maybe not easy questions to ever answer well it, i I think it is. I mean, I, I fall, I fall on the, the social phenomena side of this right. and that that's really what's going on here. Um, and that it's both a, a, a beautiful and terrible thing. Um, but so for, for the guru, you didn't get to see how petty and um, ugly he could be unless you were in a certain radius of the inner circle of that organization. Right. I didn't see any of that while I was in Los Angeles with the group because um, it, it, you're insulated from it. If you think of it, um, there's a social penetration model. I forget if the, the um, researcher who came up with it, but it basically it looks like a target. And so you have frequency and um, depth of, of um, self-revelation self or sharing of things that are important to yourself mm -hmm. and that's what defines how broadly you are in involved in this group and how intimately you are involved in this group and so if you think of a, a a target with the guru in the center and then these concentric circles where you have then an inner circle and then the peripheral circle to that and then another one to that on these outer layers 
that's where all the good stuff is. That's where all of the community is. That's where all of the spiritual practice right. is, devotion. But when, when you get in closer and the requirements for devotion increase, it gets increasingly exploitative. So I didn't see any of the ugly of him until long after the sexual relationship had begun. Well, maybe not long, but till after the sexual relationship. Had okay. Begun. Well, just because we haven't mentioned that so far. So mm-hmm. um, why don't you go ahead and say whatever you wish to about the disillusionment. And I think for the impression I get from the documentary is everyone had their individual disillusionment, which they kept private growing inside of them. And then one day there was an email set around and the dam burst, but please say whatever you wish to about your own disillusionment process. Yeah. Well, I mean, more than anything else, it was just blatant, the blatant hypocrisy that went on from day to day. You know, it's, this, this was a guy who was um, telling people, oh, you know, you're missing it if you get caught up in, you know, being emotionally attached to a person romantically, or if you're angry at one of your brothers and sisters over something, you need to let it go. Um, be- because, you know, in, in meditation, you're not attached to the external ups and downs of the world. You know, you've transcended that. So if you're in any sort of emotional state that's not bliss, um, you're wrong. <laughs> and everything that's coming out of your mouth is wrong. Um, but then we would watch this guy, and he would bump into a doorknob and yell at you because you were the person closest to him, and you didn't get the door out of his way. Or he would, you know, trip over a shoe that he had left on the floor and yell at you for not having picked it up. Um, you know, he, he wanted he wanted a glass of water, and how did you not know that, you idiot? You know, can't you see my glass is empty? So eventually, just the, um, you can't, you get to a point where you can't rationalize it off anymore. You can't, ra- you can't any longer go, yes, God realization, but he's emotionally immature. I mean, that's what they're doing with Trump, right? It's the, it's the, it's the same sort of rationale that happens in nationalism. It's that idea of, Oh yeah, but he's just saying that. He's just saying that on the surface. That's not really what he's thinking. That's just how he's playing his politics. But really, he's got a plan, and everything's going to work out. You know, the, that's the hyper credulity is what we call it. Um, when you'll when you'll just you'll you'll rationalize anything off to make the leader seem okay. And so the disillusionment happens when you can no longer rationalize the behavior anymore. And and you said in the documentary that you hated him by the end of it, oh. understandably so, because there was this yeah. sexual abuse going on. Yeah, absolutely. And that was a moment where I just, I, I felt like uh, the the cognitive dissonance going on in my life was enormous because I would sit and meditate and have these euphoric experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, experiencing this euphoria and this intense hate for the person I was looking at. And it was so hard for me to, to wrap my mind around that because supposedly he's the source of this euphoria I'm feeling, these good blissful feelings of love, like you know, broad love, not specific love, but very generalized love. Um, but then there's this other feeling for this person and that was the thing that just really started to make me crack um, and then, um, 
yeah, I mean, I really, I watched three people in the group have full on psychotic breaks wow. I mean, where they thought they were other, other people. Um, so that disillusionment process can be just horrible, horribly brutal. Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming there's this kind of Wizard of Oz moment where you see the man behind the curtain and you realize this person you thought was God embodied for all these years is just a rather disturbed person. There's more than one person. I think you're one of them, but more than one in the documentary says there was this moment when he was really confronted and his face changed and his eyes went black and it was creepy. And there's a really like seeing beneath the mask moment almost that people reported. Very much so. It was two of us spoke about that on those interviews. Yeah, yeah. Philippe was the other one. And I've heard other people say that since. Um, yeah, it was bizarre. Most bizarre thing I've ever seen. One um, of the other community members described, said, I won't call him anything but what he is, an out-of-work actor who struggled, stumbled on the role of a lifetime. Okay. Yeah. Is that the sense you were left with? Did you get the sense that he had any actual interest in the spirituality or the yoga or anything like that? Or was it just that he was had this narcissistic desire to control people and exploit them for money and sex? And he said he saw others doing it and thought, I could do that. What Well let me let me answer that with, with a story I found out um, after the movie um, from two people who had known him before he was Michelle the Guru and he was Michelle the wanting wanting to be an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, living in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, He had a friend, a female friend, who was living in Miami and who was going to the Divine Light Mission and was, um, I think, Maharaji Yogi is, I I think, the guy how the man refers to himself. And they have these um, four techniques that they were initiating people into called the knowledge. And they were from the um, Patanjali Sutras. You can find them in there. And so she had been going through this, I don't know, three, four month process um, before being initiated. Um, And then one day on her initiation, the people that were giving the initiation were like on a circuit traveling through the different organizational outposts. The people that had done your preparation work over those three, four months weren't the ones that were initiating you. Mm -hmm. And so she vouched for Jaime, who came along to her initiation, hadn't done any of the stuff before, just told him like what, what the cliff notes were for him to need to pass. Mm. And he walked in and received the spiritual initiation and then turned around and started sharing it with people. And then eventually his, his story about having had a guru that he served yes. and, and all of this stuff. Um, that was all the fabrication. Developed. Yeah, it developed to explain or to cover up what yeah. really happened, which was he went in under false pretenses to receive a religious indoctrination. So, so one of the things that's really striking to me about the story, um, and I know you've gone on to study religious movements, okay? These, these guru abuse stories have so many common themes to them, it seems to me. It's almost as if there's a manual they're reading that we don't know. It's not available on Amazon. I don't know where you get it, but you just see um, in the book, um, to cite an example, okay, um, I just read in the book the the guru files about um, how sex is. So many gurus either forbid sex 
or encourage rampant promiscuity because what mm -hmm. they don't want is intimate relations forming because that's right. a little isolated right. thing that's out of their power. And I know that was a big part of you coming out of the group. Yeah, um, it turns out that that's one of the one of the primary ways that people end up leaving the group is through forming some sort of interpersonal relationship right. that takes primacy. But we're not like I can understand how a, a rationale could be given. Okay, because like abstinence has always been a part of spirituality, and then you have the the mirror opposite of that of you've got to let go of your attachments. Okay, there there's the rationale. But it's just bizarre to me that because when I heard that, I thought I could just run through and think, oh, yeah, this cult, this cult, this guru, this guru, and just list them off my mind of all the ones that have em employed that kind of tactic. And that was just a starting point if I could think of just the commonality of themes of control. So uh, let's take that as an entry point then, because you went on. I know you worked as a bouncer for a while and I thought, I thought that was interesting because it's being in the court is like the absence of boundaries and you literally got a job as a boundary yeah. between yeah. <laughs> yeah. Way you, yeah. ironic <laughs> yeah um and probably i guess kind of healing and as well um, but you went on to study religious movements and that's mm -hmm. something i don't know so much about because it's not in the documentary it just says it at the end what took you into that and, and what did you find um about the Let's take the similarity in in cult abuse. Oh, um, well, geez. Uh, if I, to, well, there's there's a few things here. Um, that's kind of expansive question. Um, yeah. But if we go to the management of sexual relationships, um, Stuart Wright, an academic out of I think he's at Lamar University, um, published a great book called. Um, Oh, no, I can't remember. It's not leaving cults. It's something like that. I'll find it and put it in below. Yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll come to me. But he talks about how there's several things that a successful new religious movement needs to do. And one of them is to manage interpersonal relationships. So it's not so much about the um, abstinence, though that's the really common one that you, you hear about. Mm. But it's more about keeping those dyadic relationships between two people from becoming more important than your devotion to the group and the movement. Um, you, you have a, a group that's very popular out here, orgasmic meditation, who they do it with exactly the opposite way. It is, um, the, the, pra the practice is clitoral stimulation. Mm. That's, their, that's their meditation practice. And... Um, but you don't necessarily get to choose your partner mm. who, you're, who you're doing this with. So it's all about controlling those relationships, um, not necessarily getting rid of sex um, in that way. Uh, the, the, yeah, the, the abuse thing to, to think about it that way, it's, I don't know, it's kind of hard to approach because it's, it's all a, it's just people have different ideologies and values around things. There's um, the children of God who molest yeah. children, and that's part yeah. of their value system. But again, that's an interesting one, because in a Christian context, it's, I, I think it's a bit harder to get rid of the family thing than it is in an Eastern context. And yet the children of God managed it. And there's very interesting documentaries that talk about how uh, the leader sent out these newsletters, which you could see they slowly turned people's mind into 
in a very interesting way. It's like I'm in a way that presented, we're asking this really difficult question, is promiscuity okay? That's, and then it, it goes on mm-hmm. to what is the age boundary? And mm-hmm. in the end, they're making basically pediophilic literature, you know, and that they yeah. take people yeah. on a journey where they're starting to feel that that's okay. And isn't, and isn't that, that amazes me too, because I've, I've heard about a, a, a satanic movement that, uh, you know, does, does slavery and does pedophilia. And, but then on the other side, you have exactly the f- same phenomenon and abuse occurring under the guise of God's love. Mm. It's the same behavior, but it, it, it's the, the um, ideological rationales are just on the other ends of the spectrum. Um, it, I, I, I feel I missed, um, I should have asked you, Really, what what drew you into story? I mean, it's kind of obvious, but what really drew you into studying religious movements? Yeah, I've already got on a bit of a tangent there. Yeah, just, just um, I, I wanted to understand what happened when right. I left the group, and I w- when I when I knew it was over for me. Oh, it was such a relief! Mm. It was such a relief because I had told myself already um, that if this thing was not over by the time I was forty, I was going to leave when I hit forty. Um, it ended when I was thirty-five. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, part of me was really, really ready for it. And, um, I'm, I'm sorry, I've started off on a tangent and can you reiterate your question? Yeah. I'm, I'm in, just interested to clarify what drew you into studying religious groups or what you're motivated. It's kind of obvious in some ways, yeah. but maybe what you hope to achieve through that. Yeah. Well, mostly it was for self-understanding because when I left the group, I didn't trust my decision making process. And I had wondered, how did I get myself into an unconsensual relationship for five and a half years? Um, <laughs> I, I, w- I was really confused. And I wanted to go forward in my life making better decisions. So it was really an investigation process on that um, it, that I went through. And I think everybody did that, whether it was through therapy or something else. But mm. for me, it was um, an intellectual approach. Okay, I'd like to start to turn the conversation towards what a healthy group might look like, and if you have any opinions on that. And particularly because in the documentary, you raise the issue of narcissists and codependents. Okay, and this is something um, I wonder about with cults because when I watch the documentary and I hear Will, the narrator, talking about the kind of person he was that got him into it. I'm sitting there thinking, Oh, I can totally relate to that. Like being interested in the mysteries of the universe and no one else around you is. And suddenly you find a group of people that are, and they're all very alive and free. And although I've, um, I've managed to escape being involved in a serious cult throughout my life. Um, I think it's in some ways more luck than good judgment. I can recognize I had a very kind of cultish mentality when I was young and I, I clung to certain ideologies in a cultish and absolutist way. Um, so what, what I'm, one thing I'm left to wonder with course is how much of it is something that anyone could get into and how much of it is there an underlying psychological thing going on where people who maybe don't see the value in themselves are then susceptible to the abuse of a narcissist. Um, because on the one hand, I could wonder like, well, you could look at the Butterfield and go, gee, it was almost perfect, right? You had all these wonderful people who were getting together to live in this spiritual community and one man through his abusive nature ruined it. But then I'm left to wonder because it's so ubiquitous, because you so often find narcissists running these groups and people drawn to them, 
is it as easy as just getting rid of them? Or do we need to look at why we're drawn to those kind of personalities? Well, I do do think we need to look at why we're drawn. Uh, Maria Konnikova wrote a fantastic book called The Confidence Game. And in the very last chapter of the book is called um, The Real Oldest Profession, which is charismatic religion. Um, And she tells the story of a a pair of uh, couple, man and a woman who were Pentecostal um, preachers in that that tradition, actually not far from me, but back in uh, the early 1900s. there's some people that are really just running a con. Um, I think they're, I think Jaime is one of those people. Um, and that he tells himself, well, everybody's feeling good. So what's the harm? You know? So what if I'm lying? Everybody's having a great experience. Maybe I'm not lying. If you want to go with postmodernist thought, you know, you believe therefore it is. And so in his mind, he really is enlightened simply because he's pulling off his, his shtick. Um, I think there's other people that, um, do deal with maybe some access to personality stuff as well. Um, and I think I, you know, like I said, I think I fell into one of those categories that would be sort of the psychiatric psychological explanation for it. Um, then there's the social process explanation, which is what Maria Konnikova offers. And her point is that there's two factors in any con game. Um, the first is magical thinking. So my willingness to believe in, you know, men, men that walked on earth that were gods or, you know, fairies that live in the forest or, you know, all, all those sort of things where it, it, it's religion that goes back as, as long as human history does, so these types of beliefs. But the determining factor for the con is people going through big life transitions. So you have that magical thinking and you have a life disruption of maybe a, a, a rough divorce and you're going to a yoga class looking for meaning. Maybe somebody's passed away in your family. Maybe you've just moved out of your parents' house into Hollywood and are transitioning to, into adulthood. I think so many young adults um, are attracted to this because of that reason. It is a big life transition. You're still not fully individuated in terms of the psychological process. And I was looking for, I was looking for something and this felt good. And it was different, very different than what I had seen my family doing. And it it felt like it was working for me at first. So I do think that there is a, a, can be a mental, I don't want to call it mental illness. Access to is, is kind of weird. It's your psychopaths, sociopaths, narcissists, borderline personalities, those kind of things. Um, but if you want to look at it from the, the, the um, psychiatric or psychological point of view, um, narcissism, they look at as having a positive valence and negative valence. Mm-hmm. We used to call it codependence. Um, what DSM-5 calls it now is um, that's a diagnostic manual yeah. for psychologists. Um, what they call it now is negative valence narcissism. So another way that I like to put it is um, there's the classical narcissist who feels like I'm the shit. And then there's the other one that feels like I am shit. Yeah. And that those two people find each other. They're attracted to each other. You know, I was attracted to him. I had an enormously... Um, 
low self-esteem, low sense of self. Um, I, I, you know, for, for reasons that were just circumstantial in my life and growing up early childhood trauma, that kind of stuff. Um, but I saw him and for a long, long time, that exaggerated sense of self that I can be Superman, that I can be Jesus, um, appealed to that negative narcissist who hated himself. Mm-hmm. And one of the good things I can say about the group, um, it burnt me out of that. Right. Like really, really did. I, it forced me to a place of balance um, that I found maybe a couple years out of the group. I, I really swung to this other side for a while. Um, but then reality kind of brought me back. Oh, you swung to having the, how do you describe positive valence narcissism? Yeah, yes, yes, definitely. The, the, um, and I think most people with narcissism have, have, um, have a, a certain swing with that. Yes. Where you have yeah. this extreme arrogance on one side. And then you have this extremely self-hatred on the other. And it's just sort of where do you spend your time in mm-hmm. that continuum. I, I do find it interesting how right back to the Greek myth, it's actually, it's a myth of Narcissus and Echo, of course. And Narcissus yes. gets lost yes. in himself, Echo gets lost in Narcissus. There's this recognition of this psychological principle going back thousands of years. It's amazing. So having said all that about the bad then, do you have any reflections on what healthy spirituality might look like that maybe can reach people who are on what the negative valence narcissism, what I was calling codependent mm-hmm. um, without abusing them. What, what does a, what does a healthy spirituality for the 21st century look like to move away from these old and dysfunctional models? Well, I, I, I think if um, we consider that the dysfunctional models put a charismatic leader at the center and focus on having a a rigid black or white ideology that perhaps what's healthy is the other side of that. Um, Where we stay away from the charisma of leaders, or at least the the worship of charisma, the recognition that um, it's it's not about the person. You know, we, we stop, stop, putting our religious leaders, our political leaders on pedestals and starts really seeing them as human beings. You know, it's objectification when you ultimately look at it. We're objectifying that person. Um, and it's not fair to them. There's some, some people that are charismatic leaders that really don't want that, but see that it kind of comes with the territory. Mm. Um, the other side of it is the rigid ideology. Um, th- this us and them thing uh, versus focusing on, okay, maybe we aren't in exactly the same group agreeing on everything, but there's some core principles we agree on. And what are those things? And letting them be very, very loose. Um, you know, less, less, less control and maybe more egalitarian participation. Yeah. Again, this might, this might just be a cultural bias that I have. Um, but I like egalitarianism. I, I think it produces good things on the whole. Yes. I mean, it's a cultural bias I share, so it's hard for me to step outside of it and, and see. And it's also, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm biased, but yeah, I do feel it's, as you say, a more functional way of being. And you mentioned there, of course, politics as well. And in the documentary, I know you, 
you speak to the prevalence of courts and say, look, there's probably one in your area. It's very likely there's a courtish group. And um, I don't know if you're specifically referring to religious groups when you said that, but of course it doesn't stay confined within what we would call religious or spiritual. Right. It, it, courtish kind of movements go into the political and I suppose around ideology too in all sorts of areas. And um, yeah, maybe we can finish up. I'll just ask you about that and how you see yeah, it. I, I, I would love to touch yeah. on that because I think it's really yeah. profound and, and I've been talking about this for a long time now. Um, extremist political movements look very much the same as religious cults. Now, if, if you think of it as a broader phenomena that works around the charismatic relationship, so you have a leader who is perfect, is idealized, is the object of worship in, in some way or another, is extremely deferred to, um, they're the ones that are going to save us from something, whatever that thing is, they're going to save us from it. And then we have an ideology that's completely black and white and that is willing to divorce itself um, or adjust to reality. Um, and you see these things in nationalist movements and you see them in, you see them in early communist movements as well. Um, Robert J. Lifton, the psychiatrist who is really sort of um, started this whole, whole field of um, academic research, was doing his research back in the early 50s on people who were being kicked out of China after or during the Cultural Re Revolution. So it was Westerners that had been there working for extended periods of time who went through re-education prisons mm. and Chinese academics whose universities were all of a sudden turned into a whole different style of indoctrination system where the the subjects like economics that they had been teaching they had to completely tow a whole different line that was completely ideological and not fact-based anymore so the study of of this very phenomenon the study of cults itself in the modern day actually started with studying mao and, and the cultural revolution right so I, I i think politics is very very closely linked to this um you know, Stalin was a charismatic leader, and then you can go to the right and look at nationalist movements. Um, Hirohito, um, Adolf Hitler, um, Kim Jong-un. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, whether it's religion or politics, these kind of group dynamics exist in the extremes. Um, and we're vulnerable to them when we either have that magical thinking, we think somebody's going to save us mm. from something or another, and we're going through tough life transitions, you know, big dramatic shakeups in our lives. Um, you know, there's Hitler rose up under a, an enormous economic collapse that had happened mm. after World War I for Germany. Um, it's a, you know, there's there's a lot of pressing things on um, on different countries now in the world as well, and um, it, it concerns me greatly because good decisions are not made by ideology. Good decisions are made by people who thoughtfully look at a problem and break it down and figure things out. Yeah, it's a concerning thing 
for me, one of the questions I've liked to explore in this podcast is, okay, so what role does spirituality play in political or economic engagement? So uh, on one hand, you could say, so is it that being spiritual or being interested in something like meditation or transcendent states of being, does that mean that I naturally will go down a particular political line, that I naturally support right. the left or the right mm -hmm. or free markets or socialism or would I be an environmentalist or not? And, or is it that it provides a kind of spaciousness where we can reflect on different points of view rather than being very locked into our own and having this polarized kind of energy and what what i see um that just like troubles me i suppose with and it's particularly come up with the trump phenomenon in the us and with brexit in the uk is this polarization of society um where uh, discussion is going the way of finding the most egregious and out there example of the other side and presenting them as if they were representative of everyone on that side and then saying well, mm -hmm. look who this person is or look what indeed this person is and I, yeah, I, I feel that it's, it's creating a very hostile, angry environment. Um, and yeah. we have this beautiful resource of the internet to communicate over and it's facilitating this conversation. Um, but you're seeing a kind of emotional immaturity play out on it in the way people are conducting themselves. I wonder if, if it's a function of the algorithmic life. Um, you know, if you if you look at an algorithm, it matches what we would call a closed communication system or a codependent communication system, where new information is very slow at some point to get in. Hmm. Um, it, it starts with a lot of new information getting in, but then it just keeps repeating itself over and over again. So, you know, I get the same ads on Facebook all the yeah. time. You get people that are related to people you know or political content that's related to something you've already just looked at and other things don't come into it. Um, yeah, I think I'm, that that's, and I think that that's reflected in the way that we're, we're behaving in society in general. Our communication has become um, so isolated from other ideas that we don't share facts anymore. And I've seen, I've heard people say that about uh, Brexit over here, that, so the Brexit vote was bigger than the non-Brexit vote, but people would say, but where are these people who are voting Brexit? Because I don't know anyone who knows anyone who knows anyone like that. I've never seen a pro-Brexit post pop up amongst my 2,000 Facebook friends. And right. these apparently open societies become very closed loops and a little bit cultish in that way that you're being fed this. Um, but even on, on the subject of facts, does that have to be brought into the conversation? The idea that we can arrive at absolute facts. So for example, you mentioned earlier, um, economics and factual mm -hmm. economics was thrown out but I find this fascinating so much of economics is done from a priori reasoning from first principle yeah, but and I, wouldn't call, I wouldn't call economics factual necessarily well, no, but... <laughs> I couldn't say what because they all disagree there's different schools yeah. and they don't they, they're not discussing like minor differences in their theories they're saying like this other school they are completely wrong in their foundations and so right. the very sense that we have um, a factual basis or we can easily arrive at one is surely up for question. Well, and I think, again, we got to not look in absolutes. I think there's things that have a higher veracity of truth mm. and a lower veracity of truth. And you can talk, you know, hard science versus social science is a great yeah. example. Yeah. Um, physics is a much more reliable science than economics is um, simply because 
um, social science is looking at human behavior and the variables you just there when you isolate them sometimes it, it makes what you're looking at not even accurate anymore <laughs> um, yeah it's a, I had one professor at the University of Texas um, Kurt Whelan said it really really great uh, in the government department there he says you know in in physics the apple always drops from the tree and hits the ground goes but in social science sometimes the apple flies up mm. or goes sideways or smacks you in the face and then dances on your head um, you know we really in our conversations you know I, I feel like I need to be humble about my own sense of what is a what is a fact and what is not and be able to engage in conversations in such a depth that we can we can question these fundamental assumptions and and get somewhere from it you know, no, but we're not all ever going to be in complete agreement about things. Um, but I, I think we can get to a point where we can look at what is a really solid fact and what is something that's still up for debate. Yeah, and I suppose it's perhaps helpful in giving you that perspective, and I could certainly relate to it, is that you're someone who is a, a for a period of your life, occupied perspectives that are way outside the normal, and then you've swapped, right? And I think if you if you have that experience of being convinced that you're absolutely right about this thing, and then you realize, oh no, I've been absolutely wrong about this thing, it changes you forever, right? And yes. you do see also yes. it's a lot of young people who are making kind of angsty videos on for YouTube, and it's you think, okay, one day they'll have the experience, and then they'll change, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think of all of the selfies that are going up now and how, how much people are going to be looking back at their, their you know, 500 selfies they put up that one year when they were 17 or whatever. And, ah, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> it was my choice back then. Okay, thank you very much, Chris. Is there anything else you'd like to uh, conclude with or any, any thoughts? Or? Um, well... No, um, thanks, Richard. Thank you for taking the time to uh, talk to me. I really enjoy the topic. Obviously, I'm very passionate about it. Um, I would love to see healthy spirituality or maybe something we could even find another name for that we can participate in together as human beings. Um, I keep going back to that question that you asked because it's a very good question and I've thought about it many times. Um, and maybe it can happen within our kinship networks within our families i i really i i don't know but i love the idea of that inspiration and that zest um toward being what we feel are our best selves and i would love to be able to do that without us all becoming assholes in the process <laughs> <laughs> wonderful point to include thank you <laughs> thank you richard Okay, thanks for listening, everyone. As I mentioned at the start, the documentary Holy Hell is available on Amazon, Netflix, and iTunes, and I'll link to the relevant pages on those platforms below. There's also a Facebook page for the film, which I'll link to. And if you've enjoyed this interview, I'll be doing more along similar themes in the future, so would be delighted if you'd subscribe or sign up to my mailing list, also linked to below. So thanks very much and I hope to see you again.